Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and this is a very special Father's Day bonus episode of the show. I wanted to take the opportunity of Father's Day, which is happening in the U.S. this Sunday, to bring my own dad onto the show for a second because my dad is not only the biggest Pop Pantheon fan and listener who is genuinely obsessed with the show in the most adorable way, listens to every single episode, has lots of opinions on it, and lets me know about all of that. But also, I had the unique privilege of growing up with a dad who worked in the music industry. My dad is still an entertainment attorney who specializes in music. And that stemmed from a very, very, very deep passion of his for music that I feel very strongly has extended to me and was a big part of the culture of our family and is a big reason why I do what I do, both in terms of my DJ career and obviously in terms of making this podcast and getting to grow up with him working in music with a lot of figures from pop that we've talked about on the podcast was extremely formative to me, getting to see how the whole process worked from behind the scenes on some level is knowledge I utilize to this day and gave me a perspective on the way that pop music works that I feel or I thought might be nice for people to understand a little bit deeper. So I invited my dad to come on the show. This is a wide-ranging conversation, but the main focuses are we learn a little bit about him and his story and talk a lot about our shared memories together because we also went through our shares of ups and downs between the two of us. But one point that we were always able to bond on was our shared passion for music, his shared love of pop music that I think has extended down to me. And we through thick and thin, always really had that as a connector between us. So we share a lot of our shared memories of pop music together. And then we talk a little bit about all of his favorite Pop Pantheon episodes and his thoughts on the rankings, his thoughts on his favorite pop star of all time, Taylor Swift, and some other really fun little nuggets in there. So I hope you guys enjoy this. I know this is a little bit different than what I normally give on the show, but in any case, here it is, my conversation with my dad for Father's Day. And happy Father's Day to all of the dads out there. Okay, so I'm here with a very special guest, unlike any other guest that we have yet had on this show. It is my father, Tim Mandelbaum. Dad, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Happy to be here, Lewis. I'm a big fan. <laughs> are you happy to be here or are you stressed about I'm a being little here? anxious <laughs> having heard the 30 or so prior episodes with people with quite the expertise and renown, but yes. here we go. I'm not going to like make you do anything that's like beyond your capacities okay. to do. Why? I wouldn't do that I to you. I fully trust you. And also you love music and really like talking about music. I do. I do. I feel like I learned a lot talking about music mm-hmm. with you all the time. Good. That's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Our paths have somewhat diverged over the years, but yeah. I know there's a lot of overlap. As we walk through the memories, I know there's been a lot of overlap and a lot of shared experiences, particularly given (laughs) beyond my historical affinity for music, my career in the music business. Yeah, I really feel that in our 
relationship. We've had ups and downs, obviously, as all family does. But I feel like this has always been a really consistent bonding point for us. Yes, it has. Is our shared passion for mm-hmm. this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it absolutely has. It goes as far back as when you were a toddler and sat at a little tiny table in the playroom with a bunch of paper out, writing on that paper. And when asked what you were doing, you referring to what you saw me doing and knowing only in the most general way what I did for a living, you said, I'm writing music. (laughs) I've never heard that before. That's so cute of me. You knew that I was in the music business and you knew that I was a lawyer, whatever that vaguely meant to you at that time. Uh You saw me reviewing contracts all the time and you associated music with contracts. So when you wanted to emulate your father, who you were very proud of, you took paper out and believed you were making music. Were you like in your like younger, like, I don't know, when you were, I don't know, in middle school, in high school, like, were you the music guy? Like, was that your thing? I would say in middle school, not quite. I think many of us were, as products of the 60s, I think many of us were discovering music, particularly rock music. In high school, my obsession with music was noted enough that in the senior yearbook, in the section, I don't know whether this is still done. I don't know whether yearbooks are even still done. But back then, in the yearbook, there would be a section called The Last Will and Testament. And it would name every senior and kind of what they leave to the class. Like senior superlatives? Well, it would of? be like, you know, it would, it would just be something that would be making note of a particular characteristic or tendency of each graduating senior. Mm-hmm. So my last will and testament that was given to me by whomever the editors of the yearbook were, was Tim Mandelbaum leaves to see another concert. (laughs) Because that's how obsessed I was, that I was probably the number one concert goer by the time I graduated from high school. That's funny. Wait, so who were your faves in that era? I mean, the real obsessive part of it, as opposed to, you know, the merely... the merely Casual listening. Yeah, the casual listening, which was more like the early as I called it, top 40 radio days. That was, you know, that was the Beatles and the Supremes and Motown and some of the English poppy bands of the day. But when we got into that more rock thing, it was much more rock, heavy metal, blues. I became very obsessed with guitar rock, really. That really was my obsession. So when I started to go to concerts, my first concerts were, I was living in Westchester County and had gotten old enough to where my parents would let me go down to the city to start to see concerts. The first concert that I went to there was a blues rock band called the Jay Giles Band. It was a rock band from Boston with a harmonica player, but it was very blues rock. The opening act for that show was an artist who came to enormous fame several years later named Peter Frampton. Oh, yeah. Several years later had what was at that time, I don't know whether it, it's changed, the most successful, highest selling live album ever really mm. made his career. I went to see and then saw many, many times and was it's one of my top fives of all time. The Allman Brothers Band, which was sort of the mm. bellwether of Southern rock and mm-hmm. uh, Led Zeppelin. I saw 
many, many times. And again, one of my all-time favorites. Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead I saw for the first time in 1973. And again, saw many, many times over the years. I got in for a handful of years into sort of progressive rock, mm. which was more, uh, had a little bit of a, what it seemed like at the time was a classical element to it. So there were bands like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and Yes, that had virtuosic piano players. I loved Eric Clapton. I loved Traffic, Steve mm-hmm. Winwood. Were you into like Jimi Hendrix yes. and like Janis Joplin well, and stuff like the that? The Woodstock thing was... You're naming a lot of men. Uh, no, I was, I, was, women yeah, I was into Janis Joplin. I was into the Jefferson Airplane and Grace Slick. Uh-huh. I loved, uh-huh. loved Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. Loved Linda Ronstadt. Mm-hmm. You know, then later on, I went and I must have seen 15 or 20 times Patti Smith. So you, you grew up, obviously, you went into entertainment law. Mm-hmm. I feel like at a certain point, you developed a real appreciation for more pure pop music. I feel like that's something you've always had. Well... You don't like all pop music. Like you definitely don't like everything that I listen to, I feel like. But you really appreciate a well-made, straight-ahead, pure pop song that's like pretty different in vibe than a lot of the musical acts that you're talking about here as like your favorite from childhood. So like, when did you get into that part of your mindset? Like, was that when you started working in the industry, that, kind of? Yes, that definitely started not only when I started to work in the industry, but when I got to EMI Records in 1987, which was my first yeah. major job in the industry. I had had a couple of others before then, but this was the first major job. And I was at a record label and within working at that record label, the roster included several pop artists. The Holy Grail was, again, it was still called Top 40 Radio. It was pop yeah. radio, whether it was straight up the middle pop at the time or music that crossed over to pop from other formats. And, yeah. you know, we had on our roster at that time a handful of artists that were much more in the pop vein. The biggest artist on the entire roster, which when I first got there was sort of like a buzzkill to me because I had come from such a more rock-oriented background was a enormously successful worldwide artist named Richard Marks. Right, and for listeners of this podcast, they might know him better as the writer of NSYNC's This I Promise You. (laughs) He was a tremendous songwriter. He was the son of a musician. And he was, at the time I was at EMI, selling three or four million albums, each release domestically and doubling that overseas. And it was straight up the middle pop. Who else was on EMI at that uh, time? Like, what are the other pop The other sort of straight up the middle pop. The one who complimented him was a Swedish band called Roxette. And Roxette, it was the same kind of thing. You know, they would deliver an album and we would just sit in the marketing meetings listening to the music. And it's really where my appreciation for it got honed. And we would just be able to plot out, you know, and I've heard you describe this retrospectively in some of your podcasts. We'd be able to pick out five singles that would end up being the campaign for the album, you know, that we would put out one after the other. And they'd each have like a, let's call it a 12 week run. And then you'd come with the next single. 
angle and do the next X hundred thousand dollar video for MTV and began to develop an appreciation for that and for taking stuff back and doing additional production on it or doing remixes of it. We had another artist who we did well with with huge schmaltzy syrupy ballads named um, Natalie Cole. Nat King Cole. Oh, of course, Natalie Cole. And she was working at the time with a producer. You would probably even know his discography from other artists named Michael Mann. Yeah. They were turning in just these enormous pop ballads. And you may remember, I'm sure you do remember, that there came a moment in that time period where I became enough enamored, not only of pop music, but of my ability to hear pop music, that I actually was responsible for bringing a pop duo into the label, an artist called Atuzi. Oh, yeah, I remember Which were these two guys from somewhere on the East Coast. And I heard the music and brought it to the label and the label signed it. And it was a real lesson in getting your hopes up and getting your hopes dashed by yes. all of the realities of the record business, at least the record business did, circa the late 80s. Yeah. In this period, did that drive you to like get into the other big glossy pop music of that late 80s period? Like, did you buy like bad i know you were into like prince and stuff right? oh yeah but that obviously trended more yeah rock. prince but did you like buy like a prayer or like rhythm nation or any of that kind of stuff or were you like listening to that stuff i was listening to it because i was like all of us we were yeah. sort of married to mtv we used to describe mtv right. at the label as literally the biggest top 40 station in the country. You would look at top 40, T100 was the biggest station in the country and whatever the LA yeah. equivalent was, was the second biggest. And you could almost like yeah. go down the line depending on the size of the city into the secondary and tertiary markets. Then MTV just was orders of magnitude right. bigger than that in terms of their ability to create and really break artists. So right. that sort of became like the holy grail. And obviously all of those artists who were getting all kinds of video play on MTV became huge artists. And, and you were like tuned into that. Definitely tuned into that. Because I feel like when I was growing up, you always knew, even if you like weren't familiar necessarily with the music, A, you always had the CD, like you always had every CD that like I wanted to listen to, right. even down to the teeniest pop song. Yeah. Like you always had the album and I felt like you always would listen to yeah. it at least. Oh yeah, time. I mean. Like I remember you listening to like the Spice Girls album. Yeah, absolutely. Like no, it was, it was, you'd know about it. It would be easy to get. If yeah. you didn't get it for free, you would just go and buy it. And yeah, yeah you would listen to everything. And whether it was a cassette, or the CD, you just put it on in the car. I just remember you always had like a very open-minded and non-judgmental opinion of all of that music. I feel like so many people of your generation, my friends' parents or whatever, were so like dismissive of our music right. as kids. And you always were interested in it. And even if it wasn't your thing, you tried to understand it and like took it seriously. Well, which like was a really unique trait. Very much so. And so at a record company, it's very segmented to a certain extent because you recognize what was at least at that time, the four or five predominant genres. So it would be pop, it would yeah. be R&B. It wasn't really quite yet hip hop. Major labels were just at this time right. getting into hip hop, but it'd be pop, R&B, alternative rock. You know, and then there were sort of things that were in between and things that crossed over from one thing to another. And that's where I really developed an appreciation for all of it. So let's bring the conversation to everybody's favorite topic, me. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you talked about me saying that I was writing music. What are your first memories of 
me or you and me together like appreciating music like were you like wanting actively me to get into the music that you liked like do you remember like what that was like like when I was really little and stuff like that it's interesting I don't have precise specific memories of trying to consciously and on a pervasive level indoctrinate you into I'm gonna call it our music because yeah your mom and I really are soulmates very in sync yeah we're we're very in sync on music many of these concerts that I mentioned this is like a huge part of your bond yes it is but I do remember relatively early certainly by most standards, you know, we started to take you to concerts. I'm sure we played you all the music we were listening all the time at home and in the car. But I really remember is starting to take you to concerts. Well, the real thing that I remember us bonding over the first time was Jagged Little Pill. Yes, that's what that's my memory as well. We took you to Roseland when first you gave me the tape. Right. First you gave me the tape. You guys were really into that, right? Like that, like you were both into Loved that. Loved it. In fact, there's yeah. a book that Guy Siri did. 25 yeah. who is madonna's manager and then was at that time was running her record right. label maverick that signed and who uh discovered her and who's yes. now is u2's manager right in any event he wrote this book where he interviewed dozens of music industry people and asked a handful of the same questions to each person and i felt a little bit self-conscious when he asked what my favorite albums were because i didn't want him to seem patronizing but at that point yeah. That album was, and still is, absolutely one of my all-time favorite albums. We were really into that as a family. I just remember, like, I was, so that was 95. I was probably seven when it came out. Really, my sister was five. I remember we were all really, like, into that as a group. Like, that was, like, a big deal. And then... The concert you took Lily and I at ages like eight and six to Roseland to like Roseland Ballroom, which was like I remember feeling like was a pretty you know it's a classic venue. It's one of the saddest things we've lost in New York City, I think. Yes. But like it was kind of grunt. Grun- I remember being like, oh my god, like this is like very grown up. And I either me or Lily sat on your shoulders because it was standing room only. Yeah, well, I think and- I think we had I was able to get us into the VIP ish area they had like a stage on the side of the stage but yeah but we took you to that concert i literally remember like what she was wearing what her hair was like like she was just the at that time she was it was like before her spiritual awakening where she like lost all her edge she was so cool she had on like this big white billowy blouse and like had like the long hair and she was like throwing it around and it was just definitely one of the most formative experiences of my life like top five I have to say like I remember it so clearly and I also remember that like set us off on a slew of concerts like we saw Joan Osborne the legend herself mm-hmm. at in, like some theater in like northern West no we saw her at the, the Capitol Theater a totally classic theater that survives to this th- actually thrives to this day yeah we saw we yeah. saw her but before we leave Atlantis Marset, I think it should be noted that you guys, you and Lily, somehow became a little bit scandalous because I think you played that music for friends of yours and not right and she cursed and shit. yeah and yeah. not every not all of the PC parents in Hastings on the Hudson appreciated yeah. that I didn't know what any of the shit she was talking about was like I really didn't get any of it I didn't get I didn't get shit right. I really didn't understand right. but I remember like really turning to you and looking to you and mom at that time like for like what I was supposed to like like I just really remember you probably gave me like octung baby yeah. and shit like that and i remember you giving me natalie cole was wait 
No, Natalie Merchant. Uh, <laughs> Natalie Merchant. Yes. <laughs> I must be one of the wonders, God's own creation. What the fuck was that song? You know what I'm talking about. What was the band again that she was up? 10,000, 10... Yeah, Maniacs. Yeah. 10,000 yeah, Maniacs. Yeah, they were great. Also, Annie Lennox. I mm-hmm. want to say you gave me like an Annie Lennox CD. You would give me a lot of CDs. I have this very distinctive memory. Mm-hmm. I have two distinctive memories of our musical tastes diverging for the first time. One is that I went over to Max Katzenberg's house in this era, and he played the Green Day album Dookie for me. And I remember that was the first time that I heard music that like you hadn't played for me before. No, like, I, I think it was. Like, oh. I think it was Weezer. No, it wasn't Weezer. Weezer was later. Okay, no, there, there was a Weezer was like during my you know like skater days, middle more like middle school. Right. And then I thought I was really into Dookie. I thought that was like really cool. And I remember being like, "This is cool. Like I have music now that's like my parents didn't give right. me. Like this is awesome." Right. And then the other like the real big boom of my musical existence was babysitter Zoe who was like the coolest girl on the block who would babysit for us and like when you would leave with like smoke cigarettes Mm -hmm. in the backyard with her boyfriend Mm -hmm. and I thought she was like the coolest person on earth I was upset me and Lily were like literally like obsessed with Mm -hmm. Zoe and she showed me two of the most formative texts of my pop cultural maturation which was the movie Clueless Mm -hmm. when I was probably like again maybe eight or nine and she gave me TLC's mm. Crazy Sexy Cool. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to that and being like, okay, like this is what <laughs> this is what I mm. like. Like this is my music. I absolutely love that record. I mean, that record. Yeah, that, I mean, really that record one. was part of the lexicon of me during that period of time when I was at EMI or right after I had left EMI and super plugged into what was happening and what was kind of cutting edge. It's still as good yes, as it was. Right. Like it's every song is good. Yep. Like a real document of that era too. Like every major R&B producer worked on it. And that's really what's like a fun aspect of it. It's like Dallas Austin, Jermaine Dupree, Organized Noise, mm-hmm. right. Babyface. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like every single, the premier roster. Yep. Every song is good. Right. The other thing that I remember from this era that I think the listeners of this are going to positively gag over is I remember being in the car with you. I must have been around 10 at this point. And I don't remember whether it like came on the radio or if you had like a demo version of it, but we I listened to Baby One More Time for the first time in the car with you. Mm. I don't remember whether you played it for me or we heard it. I can't remember, but I remember you openly excited about how great mm-hmm. it was, how what an amazing song it mm-hmm. was, and presenting her to me like she's the female Backstreet. She's going to be the female Backstreet mm. Boys. And I remember you like talking about that and how like, I guess maybe your insights into like what a big thing this was behind the scenes right. about how explosive it was going to be. Do you remember I that? I do, but I don't think I played you it. I think we must have heard it on the radio. I don't think I I don't yeah. think I had it to play. Whatever it was, it was the first time I'd ever heard it and I remember you being very giddy about that song. Right, right. That was a right out of the box first listen, undeniable. Truly. Yes. And to this day. Yes. Never gets old. Never gets ever, old. Ever, no, ever. it stands the test of time. Yeah. That was the era where you also started to take us to Jingle Ball. That was like the other you used to take 
take me and Lily and like Lily's friends <laughs> to see Z100 Jingle Ball mm-hmm. at Madison Square Garden. And you'd sit there through and sing and Craig David. <laughs> Do you remember I that? remember Jingle Ball at the Garden. I remember Jingle Ball at Radio City when it was the first time uh-huh. we saw it in sync uh-huh. because Third Eye Blind was there. That right. was the reason we went to that show ostensibly, but that was the first time we saw in sync. We should talk about the Third Eye Blind thing because that feels like another big thing. So like you were obviously at this point, you had your own law practice, your own entertainment law practice, and you were representing like a lot of pretty cool people. Right. Was that pre you representing a lot of really cool people or was no, that, that was, like in the late 90s? No, that was that was 90s. the mid 90s. At that time, I was representing many, many hip hop artists. Uh, right, like Wu-Tang like Clan. Like the Wu-Tang Clan and Jam Master J mm-hmm. and Fat Joe started and this label out of Houston called Suave House with 8Ball and MJG. Mm-hmm. So I was very into that world. And then the Third Eye Blind thing happened. And being a rock band, albeit one that crossed over, we got to go to many, many, many concerts and we took you to those. I mean, so... Well, I just also remember being like, feeling like I was on the journey right. with that because you were really involved with that from like the demo days. Yes. Like I remember the demos hearing like like early versions of Semi-Charmed Life and all those songs like before they sounded like the ones we know today right. and being like extremely enamored with the process of what was going on there. Right. Like that they were taking these songs and they were altering them and I remember like they were working with producers. I, was there a producer other than Steven on that album? There was, I'm forgetting his name, but there was somebody who came in and did additional production. Yeah. I remember the production changing like on some, what significantly on some of the songs. Right. And And I remember like being very aware of the journey of these songs, like in in their creation. I knew, did you take us to the studio and stuff? I mean, I must have been um, there. I might have taken you to, only because they did most of the recording on the West Coast, and I even think in San Francisco. I don't know if we went to the studio itself, but there may have been some sessions that happened in New York, and I would have taken you to it. Maybe in later years, with later projects, we went to the studio. Well, you definitely took me to the studio in, I want to say, like, Port Chester or something, and to see Jessica Simpson. No, that, it was that, Jessica, was, uh, that was in Bronxville <laughs> when she was working with... In Bronxville. With, with, with Car- Evan and Carl. With Evan and Carl. Who would go on to discover Rihanna. Right. But I remember meeting Jessica Simpson before she was famous. And I was probably at this time, well, it must have been like 2000 and, or 1999 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, she, right? got, she got signed in about 1997. And so probably by yeah. then it was at least a year later, late 1998 yeah. or something. And they had her yeah. working in New York with Sturkin and Rogers. And their studio happened to be 10 minutes away from where we lived in Bronxville. And so on a Saturday afternoon, we drove over there. I remember yeah. that. Very well. Yeah, she was like very pretty all-American girl. Yes, exactly. And was so nice. So nice. I just remember her being like really nice, like older, cool, yep. pretty, nice, right. Southern right. girl. And that was like the era where like you started, like like your career was really taking off and you were like working with lots of incredible people. And then I feel like I remember you taking me to the studio right. with Pharrell. Right. And like Pharrell sitting and talking to me and being like, right. taking an interest in me and like watching him do shit. Right, right. right. I feel like I did that that multiple yeah, times. Yeah, no, well, no, we, I, I represented the Neptunes for about four years during what I like to think of as certainly the big first wave when, yeah. when you couldn't turn on the radio. It was like hot in here, right. milkshake, 
slave for you, every rap, you know, I just want to love every, you, all the Nori, Jay-Z, ODB. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it just was like... Really, a, one of the greatest runs yeah, ever. Right, I mean, right. truly, it was like everything they touched turned to gold. And they were incredibly, Pharrell in particular, incredibly musically voyeuristic. And mm-hmm. I mean, we, we went to Nashville together to make a deal for a country artist he was signing. He was getting hired to do, you know, Elvis Presley remixes, you know, U2 stuff. There was just no limit to it. I also have this really amazing memory related to this where you took me to Summer Stage in Central Park to see NERD. And we were kind of like backstage area and they brought out like Buster mm-hmm. Rhymes and they did Pass the Cavassier and Khalees was there. Right. That was like a huge thing for me too. I remember being like, that was incredibly cool. And like, I think I met Khalees yep. and I thought like Khalees was really cool. I thought she was like incredibly awesome. And obviously the thing that we can't pass over is the familial or more like, I guess you and mom ultimately you two obsession. And this was also the era where you were literally like shuttling us to see you two perform in like Canada and like LA. And like, I feel like we saw one U2 tour like 16 Well, times. we, we, I took you guys to Toronto for mom's birthday to see Third Eye Blind open for you two at the Sky Dome. Oh, right. 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 So we, yeah, uh, that was why. I'm trying to remember like what was going on for me with like my musical taste in that era because I don't think I was like listening to a lot of U2 like by myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I was still young. This was probably like what, 2001 or two. I was yep, probably exactly. 15, mm-hmm. 14. Mm-hmm. Like that was definitely like I was really into like pop and R&B. I feel like I wasn't listening to a lot of U2. You were also, as I remember, you were really gravitating by that point to hip hop. Right. Cause I, that was, this was like my, hip-hop I remember, era. you know, like I'd start to want to throw out stuff that I wasn't going to listen to, uh, you know, a lot of yeah. secondary rap stuff. And you yeah. wanted a lot of those CDs. You know, it's always interesting looking back at my musical identity and like where my tastes were and like what I wanted to project to the world right. was also, because you know what, this might've been a little bit of my pre rap era. This was maybe more my like middle school. This was super fake pretending to be into like ska and punk Uh, because like of the friend group mm -hmm, who were like very anti-pop yes anti-radio this was like way pre-poptimism era like it was not cool to be into pop especially as a guy like it was very looked down Mm -hmm. upon what was the name what was the name of the band you guys created zero casualties Uh okay (laughs) (laughs) i was the drummer Mm -hmm. we wrote a song called karma it was me john vingiano Julian Tender and Peter yep. Sobel. Mm-hmm. Iconic lineup, mm-hmm. of course. I think we played at a bar mitzvah <laughs> at some point. Yep. We were really on the circuit. <laughs> yeah, but I do remember having this like massive conflict during this period of like, I was into everything that was on the radio. Like as I think is clear to anybody that listens to this podcast Mm. but i really had to pretend that i was into like mxpx and no fx and pre-pop blink 182 and that was a huge like lie Mm. that i was selling the world and i remember asking you for all those cds Mm. and you dutifully got them for Mm. me and i like never listened to any of them because i was like all i want to listen to is like country grammar right (laughs) right (laughs) 
Then I went into like more of like my hip hop, like my actual like deep appreciation for like hip hop mm-hmm. phase, like more in like high school. Right. By the time I got to college, I feel like, and I continue to have a deep appreciation for hip hop on some level, but like by the time I came out and then I went to college, my like real pop instincts kicked into high gear at that point, probably. Right. Right, exactly. I feel like our major point of overlap in later life is Taylor. Mm -hmm. Yes. Would you agree? Yes, I would say she is the sweet spot of our overlap, for sure. Would you call yourself a Swifty? Uh, (laughs) I would say... I would say I had a I had a period that culminated. What tour did we go to see her together at MetLife Stadium? What tour was that? 1989. So I think it sort of culminated then, and then it sort of waned. Yeah, you were not into the pop era. No. You were like not, I don't think you were into 1989 that no. much. No, I... Here's what I remember. You were obsessed with Fearless. Yes. And Red. Absolutely. You loved yep. Red. Loved Red. I used to play Red so loud in the car by myself. <laughs> what do you love about Taylor? I love the storytelling. I love the honest, simple storytelling, very revealing and vulnerable. And I have a real sweet spot for, I sort of call it like Cal Country. Yeah, like Sheryl Crow. Yeah, Sheryl Crow, like Laurel Canyon meets country type of thing. And meets pop. Yeah, meets country, beats pop, where that yeah. sort of converges. Yeah, like you like Marin Morris. Yes, exactly. You know, and as you will remember, I had that couple of year period that was very big for me when I was managing Ruby and Summer, when yeah. they were signed to to Lyric Street Records in Nashville. Ruby and Summer were like a sister duo act who remain very close friends of our family to this day who were at the time creating what? Like kind of like some hybrid of like surf country pop vibes together. They were from a surfing community outside of San Diego, but they were making surf influenced country music. So very much had strings in the arrangements. And I just, I love the story. Swifty. Yes. Swifty. Exactly. They were shades of Taylor. Exactly. And, and in fact, at the time I was advocating for them to get signed, I would make that reference point. I would say, look, you're getting a surf iteration of Taylor, who by that point was approaching being the biggest artist in the world. I can do what I want. I can make it alone. I can shake off the dust. Got a heart on my own. Yeah, but that was more like early, early Taylor. You know what else we didn't touch on that I also remember being like a big point of bonding and I felt really proud that you cared so much what I thought was there was this artist, Genie, like during like the mid-2000s. It was 2005, yeah. Yeah, you were also managing her. She had like an incredible voice, like Christina Aguilera level vocal talent. Right. And I remember I felt very involved, like you would play me all the demos and like ask what I thought about them. Yeah. And I remember feeling like I was part of it. And that was well at that time. And this was 2005. I'd say the dominant pop music at the time was Christina and the big Mariah Carey. Jojo. Yep. And Jojo. And Jojo, but also the big Mariah Carey album. Um, was it called Life of Mimi? Emancipation. Of Mimi, yeah. Emancipation of Mimi. Yeah. Ironically, I think it was already heading toward the tail end of that phase, but... Emancipation of Mimi was 05. She got signed in 05. And so mm-hmm. basically I took it upon myself with 
all of the contacts and relationships I had in the A&R community in the industry, I took it on myself to take this incredible talent and this sort of star quality persona and build a bunch of songs around her. So I got very involved and hence you guys got involved in listening to all these songs as they got created. In fact, she worked with, among other amazing writers and producers, she was Stargate. involved with Stargate in their very first residency at Sony Studios in New York City. And just to clarify for everybody, Stargate would go on to produce Irreplaceable, Only Girl in the World, Rude Boy, every Neo song, Firework by Katy Perry. I mean, like the list is kind of endless. Right. Two Norwegian guys. So you guys got to live through that fairly brief, but very dynamic journey. Well, she got like a huge record deal and then it sort of fell apart. I remember that was like a really insightful thing for me about the way that all of this worked. I just remember she had so much talent. Everyone was so excited about her. I feel like she got like a million dollar record deal at like at somewhere. She had an ins insane bidding war. Yeah. It was really just the byproduct of six or seven demos that she made that were really good. Yeah. They weren't quite pop hit level, but they were really, right. really good. Incredible performer, really dynamic. And she would just march into, and this is how it was done back then, pre-internet era, although the internet was coming, she would just march yeah. into anybody's office, the head of A&R, the CEO of the company, and just do the three songs that yeah. she performed them. Right. It was the end of like a label putting any effort into like creating a star as opposed to like them already having tons of shit going on on their own. Right. I feel like. Exactly. Like, let me tell you, a bunch of those Stargate songs that she cut ended up on Jessica Simpson's A Public Affair album that came out in 2007. There was a few demos that were genie songs to me. It was a very insightful thing to me to see a, you know, that you could kind of have it all going on and it's just like, you just never know what the fuck is going to make it click or make it happen. Like it was just, it's so much of what a luck of the draw was. You could have so much talent, you could have everything going, but it just, for whatever reason, it doesn't click. And that's just like, not the thing. And then also, she was just like such a normal girl. I remember just being like, we were about the same age. The same we age. like hung out a lot. Yeah, she was lit. Yeah, we like hung out all the right. time. And she was just kind of like this normal girl, but also like a pop star, like could be a pop star or like could have been a pop star. It was a very interesting cycle. I remember. Also, interestingly, and probably, you know, notable for your audience, as you talk about all the different artists that you talk about, she didn't really write. And right. that's the time I was involved. We tried to get her to write and we tried to cloak it as if she were writing. But at the end of the day, she really didn't write. So you'd have to have other people kind of get her to like ideate enough so that they could try to write what she was thinking.
thinking about. And I think that was ultimately a, a sort of a demerit in what worked for her. How did you see me at this time? Like, did you think I was going to like pursue a career or pursue a life with this at the center of it? At that time in like 2005? No, definitely not yet. You were more interested in like theater and acting to the extent you were doing anything that was like in pursuit of something that you were passionate about. At that point, it wasn't really about music. But you were aware of my passion for all. Yes, absolutely. All I know is that I was in this era taking all of your CDs that you, of which you had an extensive collection, loading them onto my computer and like going through them one by one right across every genre and time period. Dutifully in my room by myself for hours late into the night, listening to every single one. And I guess using the internet to figure out the story of all of this. Like I remember that was happening at this point. Like I was like going through your CD collection, mm-hmm. not just like listening to it, but like reading every piece of criticism mm. that I could find about them all and like trying to contextualize all of it. I remember getting very obsessed with that in like high school and then starting to fill in the gaps on LimeWire, which you were very upset about, mm. which like, you know, whatever. But, <laughs> um, and also stealing your Rolling Stones and entertainment weeklies and being like every week just waiting to mm-hmm. read reviews and like right. really getting into this idea of like discovering that there was like a group of intelligent people out there that were taking this very seriously mm-hmm. and like giving it real thought right. and right. putting it in a light that I never would have thought mm-hmm. of before. Right. I most remember, not the fondest memory, I mean, I remember the <laughs> iTunes phase. Yes, of yes. course. Uh. My retaliation for you taking LimeWire away from me was it was the beginning of iTunes and I just was like fine then i'll buy it all (laughs) on my credit card and then you made me pay you back (laughs) by getting a job delivering chinese food (laughs) for a summer (laughs) truly the highlight of my existence Mm -hmm. but i have to say it all paid off i think i mean look look how far i've come (laughs) off the back of those itunes that's right that's right (laughs) so okay so listen you're a big pop pantheon yes You've listened to every episode of Pop Pantheon from the beginning. You heard drafts of Pop Pantheon episodes that nobody's ever heard before. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh Yes, I have. I remember playing you guys the first episode, the Ariana episode in an early form and like hiding upstairs while you all listened to it. I I remember exactly where we were. And let me tell you, I still don't want to listen to that episode Mm -hmm. ever again. Mm -hmm. I made a note that that was one of my favorites. Really? I think it was the... To this day? Well, because it was seminal. After all of the incredible no, work well, no only because it was seminal for me because it was the first one in really seeing what the scope and the depth of the archaeological dig that is what you do on these episodes and it was just like mm. oh my god like i had no idea that she was thinking this when she recorded that and the label was saying you know whatever they were saying i really appreciated as a music fan as a industry executive, somebody really giving it, giving an artist's career the level of deep exploration that I heard on that first trial run. I remember two things that were memorable for separate reasons, both good from you listening to that episode, like from a draft, early draft of that episode. One was that you very astutely noted that I didn't do a good enough job 
helping illustrate what her personality or persona, her, her like pop star persona was mm-hmm. like. That registered with me. And that's something that I always try to keep in mind now is like to make sure that we're not just like illustrating musical things, but we're also helping figure out like who they are in a bigger sense. And then the other thing I remember is you being like, <laughs> like she'll never be tier two. She'll never mm. be tier two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And being like very impassioned about right, that. I remember. Do you still, I do, do you still feel that I way? Do. do you still feel? Uh, that way? I think the jury is uh, the jury is very much out. I think the jury's out on that. <laughs> what are other other favorite pop pantheon episodes? So one that really I have a list of about eight of them, Ooh. but one that really resonated that I didn't expect to was uh, was yeah. Missy Elliott. Uh-huh. I just remember I was sitting, I, for at least a chunk of it, I was sitting in the car outside uh, Air One waiting for mom. Yeah. And I just was like going, this woman's shit is, it holds up so well and it's oh, yeah. so incredible. And like, you know, I didn't love her as much then as I appreciated her. That was a big part of my heyday inside the yeah. industry. I mean, she was like the queen right. of the first million dollar videos, you know, all of that. And I, you know, I didn't love her as much then, but when I heard the music as you highlighted it, I just was like, holy shit, she's incredible. Like, and this stuff just really holds up. Yeah. The music is like some of the most inventive that mainstream pop has ever produced. And I agree with you in terms of timelessness. Like I think those Timberland songs hold up better than the Pharrell Mm -hmm. songs, frankly. Like if you think of them as the two kind of most iconic hip hop to pop crossover producers of the time, I feel like as incredible as all those Pharrell songs are, they feel very of that moment. Whereas like the Timberland and Missy songs sound of no moment to me. Like, yeah, they're, they're a little bit more like space aged and timeless. Yes. Right, right. Exactly. So yeah. two uh-huh. more that I got really engrossed in, and they're sort of, you know, they're two versions of the th- same thread, mm-hmm. were Celine Dion and Kylie Minogue. Oh, wow. You know, Celine Dion, I mean, she's had a very, very long career, but was very much of the pop era that I kind of was describing when I was at EMI, like the big pop ballads, the incredible voice. And I just didn't realize the whole thing you know, the French thing and the Canadian thing. I mean, I, you know, I knew that's where she mm-hmm. was from, but I didn't realize sort of the magnitude of the French side of her career. So I found that really fascinating. And then similarly with Kylie Minogue, just the distinction between who she is or who she represents here in the States versus everywhere else. I just learned a lot. Me too on both of those. And also you're reminding me of a very seminal pop memory between us, which is that I have a very distinct memory. This must have been back in 1995. Speaking of divas in the Celine Dion mold of watching the always be my baby Mariah Carey music video on VH1 and just thinking it was like the greatest song I'd ever heard. And I was still in the era where like, I was still really like thinking that we all had to like the same music and like be on the same page Mm -hmm. about everything. And I remember going into the kitchen and asking both you and mom, I was like, I was like, guys, like, (laughs) do you know about Mariah Carey? Like, she's so amazing. Like, have you heard this song? And, And I remember you saying very sweetly, but like in classic you fashion, you were like, yeah, we know about her. I think we, I'd say we, appreciate her more than we like her. <laughs> yeah, that was... And it was at that moment that I realized maybe our musical paths were diverging uh-huh. <laughs> in, the, in the world. Right, right. I was like, what? I was like, what are you talking about? It's like, how is that possible? <laughs> so I'm just going to name some of the others. I mean, I, I okay. love the ABBA one. Mm. I actually really loved, I remember 
where I was when I listened to it. Uh, such a disconnect for obvious reasons. Uh, I think reasons maybe you even regret at this point, but the Madonna one. No, I don't, re- I don't regret. I don't regret. It's just that we, you know, we're going to have to do actual episodes on her at some right, point. Right, right. Like actual modern day pop pantheon episodes right. on her at some point. Diana yeah. Ross, Rihanna, mm-hmm. both fantastic. You know, Diana Ross was, I'd say a big part of it was just so sentimental because yeah. her career basically spans my life. So right. that was very, and just right. Rihanna, I think is like a fascinating persona. So it was really interesting mm. to hear her whole story told. Then the other one, which was just really fascinating for obvious reasons to me and probably everybody who listens to you was the Max Martin thing with John Seabrook because I like you and I don't remember who read it first but we had both read that book yes and I found that book incredible so Mm -hmm. to hear him talk about the man who was really the centerpiece of that book not to mention so much of pop music was really fascinating and a lot of the pop music that you actually appreciate yes. whether it be hit me baby one more time or it be you know i knew you were trouble right. when you walked in or right. whatever it is like i feel like max martin represents something about your pop taste somehow yes. on some level and i'm glad you enjoyed the rihanna episodes because for some reason she's the type of pop star i feel like you don't care for that much you know generally but speaking. i appreciated it a lot more when i listened to the music as you sort of highlighted it during the podcast yeah but she's like not up your alley generally speaking i feel like you're not I'm trying to think of like what it is. You're not into like, you're like a, you're like a, well, I guess Britney's not wholesome. I was going to say, do you like them a little more wholesome? Like, cause Taylor's kind of wholesome. Like, I don't know if you're into like the more salacious girls as much. I don't know that it's that. Or da- anything that kind of trends towards dance pop. But then you, I remember you listening to Robin at some and point. I loved, and liking loved Robin. Robin. Loved. Yeah. Loved. But again, there that it's like that sweet, perfect song craft. That's really the thing. Maybe right. Is the thing. It's like Max Martin, Taylor Swift, Robin. These are like the highest end right. song makers. Right of to all time right right you know i'm not sure and i wouldn't want to make it out that i'm such a uh, holier than thou stuffed up <laughs> auteur or something like that i think i'm also a bit uneducated on it i always feel like if you like something it's meaningful yeah, right i feel like you're very honest you're very instinctual and honest with what you like in this room. yeah like you're very like i like it i don't like it. it you don't like overthink it too much and thus it's meaningful yeah like i'll give you it's i'll like give a, you i'll give you a couple of examples apropos of the podcast i listened to kesha and it didn't i enjoyed the episode but it didn't make me like the music no that i could never i could never picture you being into a kesha song but because i also think you like there's there's an earnestness that you maybe like but then i don't think so because then is would you call hit me baby one more time earnest i don't know no but incredible i remember how much i loved slave for you i mean i just loved it right well you also yeah because you also you you appreciate all the janet material too Exactly. Which is like in that similar vein. That was another great memory is when we saw Janet in Santa Barbara. That was amazing. Amazing. Such a fun. That was was so much fun. That was so, such an actually ironically fun place to see her. You wouldn't have thought, oh, I'm going to see Janet Jar. In like an amphitheater. That was so weird. And then we both got to meet her afterwards, which was like one of the most incredible moments of my entire life. And there's a really funny picture that I will post on the Instagram of the three of us together. We waited. (laughs) They they took our cell phones. (laughs) 
please do. But anyhow, the other artist that comes to mind that because of the podcast, I really enjoyed and then went back and listened was Charlie. Oh, that's good. Again, though, you're kind of highlighting my point because Charlie's another person that like is a top tier song crafter. Right. I feel like this is a theme here. This is a thread. Mm-hmm. Charlie, Robin, Max Martin, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, right. Missy and Timberland. You have a state of the art taste in pop song craft. You're not fooled by the veneer. Yeah. You're not fooled by the bells and whistles. The songs have to be sturdy underneath there. <laughs> I remember um, <laughs> in 2015, you and me driving hours and you played me um, whatever that- Carly Rae Jepsen. Yes. The, the li- you were not into no, Carly that Rae didn't, Jepsen. that didn't, whatever you played me didn't work for me at that moment. <laughs> that was a shocking moment for me, I have to mm-hmm. say. Like I was like, Okay, he loves Taylor. This is like kind of Taylor adjacent. No, I remember that. I remember that being a giant swing and a miss. Any pop pantheon rankings you've been upset about besides Ariana? No, I've actually, they've really been spot on and I've felt very good that I can pretty much nail them on my own. Guess them. Yep. I I have pretty, without having the criteria memorized, I think I have a pretty good sort of radar. If you strongly disagreed, I would take that very seriously. Yeah, no, that would be. I a think problem. they've been spot on for sure. Do you think Taylor is tier one or tier two? Oh, there's not even like it's tier one without a doubt. I really? have no no equivocation. Oh my god. No, I have zero equivocation about that. Wow. I mean, to go through okay. all the criteria right now, and I what criteria? Which one doesn't she hit? I mean, she's had like a long career, stadiums for the rest of her life. You know. Yeah. I mean, I, I listen. I'll be goddamned if I'm going to reveal what I think about this prior mm. to the most anticipated episodes of this entire project. Yeah. So, just putting okay. that forth. You could say what you think, but I'm not going to. I would say the thing that rides against her potentially is simply that do we have the luxury of retrospect at this point to know how we're going to look back on all of this in 10 15 20 years i mean i i i guess but how much because we're still in the heat of it we're still in the thick i mean it's funny because to me i assume i've never even given it a second thought i assume beyonce is a tier one and if beyonce is a tier one what's the difference in their career longevity 10 years beyonce has been releasing music since 1998 taylor's been releasing music since when 2007 Hmm. six Hmm. okay i mean i don't know it's hard for me to beyonce's prime career trajectory feels largely complete to me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm not saying taylor doesn't listen i'm not saying either these are like literally the two two of the three most anticipated episodes of this Mm -hmm. podcast right i'll be goddamned i think beyonce is not debatable i think beyonce's is is no i know that look at the graphic of the of the thing no listen people are very passionate on either side of this taylor mm-hmm. thing i mean there are people that are very upset with the idea that she's in tier one mm-hmm. so i'll just <laughs> okay. say that anyway <laughs> anyway i appreciate your insight that i'm banking that listen this was really fun i really feel like i owe a lot of my knowledge my passion my appreciation for music, how much genuine love and appreciation I have for it to you. I mean, I feel really lucky and privileged that I grew up with a dad in a family where we loved music. We saw music as a bonding activity where we got to experience it from so many different angles from getting a look behind the curtain to also just like sitting in the car together and like listening to stuff. That was such a huge 
part of my formative structure as a human being. So I feel like I'm really glad that we got to have this conversation because I think people wonder sometimes like where this is all coming from, like what I've been sitting on. (laughs) And I appreciate, I appreciate doing this and I appreciate your sharing that. But, you know, I also want to, I think, conclude by telling you and everyone else how proud I am that you've done such an incredible job galvanizing your incredible passion for and knowledge of music. I think you're doing such an incredible service to tons and tons of people who love it as much as you do and who are yearning for a home for their passion. So I'm incredibly proud of everything you've done. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. You're so welcome. Well, happy Father's Day. Thank you very much. This was really fun. This, This was fun. See, you didn't have anything to be nervous about. No. Now you can come back and do a full episode. Okay, let's do it again. All right, love you, Dad. Love you, too.